0: Hello and welcome to No Lasting City, probably the second best podcast in the world. I'm Matthew Johnston and flying solo today here on No Lasting City. This podcast is a ministry of Riverbend Bible Church here in Hastings, New Zealand. And our goal with this podcast is to distract you from the mundane and to ravish your minds with the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to come with another espresso shot, episode three, and you'll be mindful of espresso shots, not espresso shots, but a play on words really where we want to express something in a compact form, uh, but also with the shot of a short black, if you will, caffeinated uh, and all that goodness. Today, I'd like to just take a moment to read as part of this episode um The Man of Selfless Dedication, uh, Moses, by Charles Swindoll. Charles Swindoll, obviously, uh, had a very long uh, ministry. He was the senior pastor of Stonebriar Community Church. He was the chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary and involved uh, in radio programs, and many people know Charles Swindoll. I want to read an excerpt from this book, A Man of Selfless Dedication, Moses, by Charles Swindoll. I want to begin reading uh, on page 7. Quote, The first chapter of Exodus reveals a strong reason why times became so hard for the Hebrews. Not only were they tenders of sheep in a land that hated shepherds, But scripture also tells us, in Exodus chapter 1 verse 8, Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. The day came, Swindoll writes, after the deaths of Joseph and the pharaoh, who had promoted him, that a new pharaoh stepped onto the throne. He too ruled, then passed the crown to the next pharaoh. Finally, after several several centuries, the name Joseph became virtually unknown. No one remembered the famine, no one recalled the golden oceans of stored grain, no one recollected how a wise young Jewish prime minister had stepped out of obscurity to save the day. That was ancient history, irrelevant, and the bilateral policy established between Joseph and some long-gone pharaoh, that was completely forgotten. This new pharaoh despised the growing Hebrew population. How had they even come to be there? No one knew for sure, the reports had been filed away in some forgotten basement archive. But one thing about the multiplying Hebrews could not be ignored. They seemed to pose a threat. And a threatened Pharaoh was not a pleasant Pharaoh to have around. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. And so a whole new way of life came to pass for the Hebrews. Notice the change. It's a sad scene. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh's storage cities, Pithom and Ramses, in verse 11. Swindoll says as I read those ominous words I can't help but recall the dark days prior to World War II When the fortunes of Jewish people in another land, Germany Changed so drastically under a hateful new ruler named Adolf Hitler Not only were Jews murdered and huddled into death camps They were also forced into cruel corporate slavery By the Reich's largest companies Housed in inhuman conditions Many of these modern era slaves were simply worked to death What happened in Egypt seems a strange foreshadowing of that tragic era. A whole new scene took place in the land of the Nile, the likes of which none of us could imagine. All too suddenly, for the bewildered Israelites, a devastating new policy came into effect, and life would never be the same. Exit equaled ease, abundance and prosperity. Enter equaled taskmasters and the whip. Archaeologists have greatly helped us to understand this portion of scripture. They have unearthed obelisks and monuments and columns etched with all manner of figures and hieroglyphics. One interesting discovery featured a mural depicting a large group of laborers working under two superior officers armed with heavy lashes. Their task? Making bricks. The two holding the whips were portrayed as crying out, work without fainting. Think of that. As long as Joseph lived, the Israelites knew peace and joy and relaxation in the sunny fields of Goshen. But then the wind shifted, clouds began to darken the horizon, and a chill crept into the air. Their Egyptian neighbours began to look at them differently, at first with suspicion and distaste, and then with outright hatred. Before anyone could figure out what had gone wrong and what they might do, the taskmasters appeared on the scene like an angry troop of jack-booted SS officers. Gone were the idyllic days of shepherding. Henceforth they were to make bricks under the snarl of slave drivers and the crack of the lash. And so it might have remained until the Hebrews were ground into the Egyptian dust. Scripture says, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help went up to God, Exodus 3.23. God heard that cry. He had not been sleeping. His attention had not been drifted. He well remembered his promise to the sons and daughters of Jacob. Way back centuries before Exodus chapter 1, God spoke to Abram, the father of the Hebrews, and unveiled a prophecy regarding that man's descendants. In Genesis fifteen, thirteen to 14, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out, with many possessions. My son, God told Abram, your progeny will grow in number and they will enter a land where they were not born. They will be strangers in that foreign land and they will be abused and enslaved, but they won't stay there forever. After several hundred years under the yoke of that brutal people, they will be delivered. They will leave that land. A deliverer would come, a man hand-picked by himself, a leader uniquely prepared to deal with both Israelites and the Pharaoh himself. His name would be Moses. Return with me to the first chapter of Exodus for a moment. Let's look at life under the Pharaohs and the taskmasters. With whips at their backs, the Israelites built two new cities for the Egyptians. You would think of all that hard labor and bitter persecution might put a crimp in the Israelite baby boom. Not so. These folks were prolific. Exodus 1 verses 12 and 13 says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. The Egyptians looked upon the growing numbers of Israelites, a mighty people, Pharaoh called them, with dread. The Hebrew word translated dread is kutz. It means to have an abhorrence for and horror or sickening feeling." When the officers of Egypt noted the swelling population of Hebrews from month to month and year to year, they felt sick in the pit of their stomachs. Had there been coffee shops in those days, John and Jane, Egyptian, might have sat at those little round tables and said over their lattes, Man, this thing is getting out of hand. Our plan isn't working. We've got to stop that growth. If we don't put the hammer on those foreigners now, they'll be running the country in a few years. And so the brutality increased. So many times when you read about brutality in scripture, you find strong emotion behind it. Roll back the rock of brutality and fear crawls out from underneath. The Egyptians' insecurity and abhorrence for their Jewish neighbors eventually led to savagery. I find that interesting. It strikes me that if you are prone to violent anger and brutality, it might be wise for you to back off and ask yourself what you're afraid of. Throughout my years of ministry, I've sadly noted how brutal people are often driven by fear, fear of loss, fear of humiliation, fear of exposure, fear of weakness, fear of losing control. The Egyptians wallowed in that kind of fear. Fear of losing their land drove them to ever more vicious acts of injustice. Once you've decided to starve or beat or mistreat a person, it becomes easy to persecute a whole population. Note what happened next. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor vigorously and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they vigorously imposed on them, verses 12 and 13. When this them to death tactic didn't accomplish Pharaoh's objectives, however, he unleashed yet another, darker plan. Again, I am reminded of the Nazis' tactics in our own 20th century. First came the denunciations of the Jews in the popular press. Second, the denial of privileges. Next, the wanton destruction of Jewish shops and property. Then the indignity and humiliation of making Jews wear special badges, marking them as enemies. At last, the crowded boxcars, the concentration camps, and the ovens. When Pharaoh saw that the harsh conditions of slavery didn't achieve his ends, he turned up the persecution dial yet one more terrible notch. Infanticide. Murder. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Puah. These two women apparently oversaw all the Jewish midwives. And here's what Pharaoh said in verse 16 to the midwives, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birthstool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Before we look at their response, let's consider these instructions. Pharaoh, acting under the compulsion of fear, holds a private conference conference with these representative midwives. I can hear the king's assistants telling him, just haul these women into the royal chambers before your royal presence and they'll be blown away. They'll be intimidated into doing whatever you say. Not those women. Before modern obstetrics clinics opened their doors, expectant mums receive care in the home. Birthplace birth took place through the help of midwives, a practice that has returned in favour in our own era. That little word birthstool in the passage above jumps out at me. I'm not even sure I want to know how what that to know what that looked like. If the truth were known, I get a little queasy when considering certain intimate subjects. When my own children were born I had zero desire to be on the scene. I've heard all about this new breed of dad that enters into the delivery room with a party hat, a camcorder, and a Domino's pizza, but that wasn't my style at all. I left it totally up to Cynthia whether she wanted an anesthetic. When it comes to those career placement tests, I'm afraid I wouldn't have scored very well in the midwife category. According to Pharaoh's instructions, the Hebrew midwife was to watch closely as the baby emerged. She was immediately to discover the sex of the child as it came forth from the womb and to snuff its life out if she noticed it was a male, possibly suffocating the little boy before he had even uttered his first cry. Then the midwives would say, Oh, I'm so sorry, this one was a stillborn. What a heinous, murderous plan. Frankly, it comes very close within a few seconds, as a matter of fact, to the present heinous practice known as partial birth abortion. These midwives, however, remained staunchly pro-life. Notice their action in their subsequent conference with a frustrated Pharaoh in verses 17 to 21. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. And so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, "'Why have you done this thing and let the boys live?' The midwife said to Pharaoh because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God that he established households for them. What heroines these ladies feared God more than they feared the laws of the king. Actually, their alibi contains some humor. The word vigorous literally means lively. They told a frowning, unhappy pharaoh, man, oh man, king, these women are fast. When we hear they're about to give birth, we rush over to the house and zip, zip, it's over. The baby's already there. And then what can we do? Pharaoh, who may not have appreciated the graphic details of childbirth any more than I do, bought the whole thing. Who was he to argue with a couple of midwives? Thankfully, these courageous women, as scripture would later say of Moses' own parents, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, were not afraid of the king's edict. Praise God for such courageous people of faith. To this day, from Africa to China, the Middle East, that some courage shines out like a beacon. All over, as you read these words, God's people are being hounded and persecuted for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And they are standing fast in the face of edicts from kings, presidents, generals, and party commissaires. They are saying, No, we won't do the things you are asking us to do. We refuse to deny our Lord. And they are paying the price. Scripture is careful to instruct God's people to be subject to authority, to pay taxes and to live quiet, responsible lives a sweet submissive spirit characterized Christ's man and Christ's woman Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 wives submit to your husbands as to the lord Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 children obey your parents in the lord for this is right Romans chapter 13 verse 1 everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities Titus chapter 2 verse 9 urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But then we come to passages like the first chapter of Exodus, and we are reminded that God's law always comes before man's law. Scripture does not teach blanket submission. The fact is, there is a time to submit and a time to resist. Before we run with that principle too far, however, a word of caution may be in order. The Exodus passage does not teach children to disobey their parents, wives to usurp their husband's leadership in the home, or anyone to reject ethical authority. But the passage does make one thing clear. Submission to civil authority has limits. As Peter once told the Jewish ruling council, we must obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. In other words, when the king's edict directly violates God's clearly stated will, we ought to fear God. Even as a couple of brave ladies named Shifra and Pua feared God, and they, being dead still speak. Scripture tells us that God honored the faith of these midwives. It says the people multiplied and became mighty and it came about because the midwives feared God, that he established households for them. I'm not sure what that last phrase implies because it means perhaps it means they found husbands married and had homes and families of their own. Whatever happened, these women were protected and rewarded by God himself. The midwives valued God's favor more than that of Pharaoh. Motivated by a deep and abiding reverence for the living God, they refused to obey the king's wicked edict. When that king told them to violate God's basic principle, the preservation of life, they refused to do so. Stop and think for a moment. The foundations of evangelical Christianity and even our very nation rest upon resistance and rebellion. We rebelled against the mother church that said, believe this and worship in the way we tell you. Our fathers back in the Reformation said, we will not, we will obey the word of God. Many of them were exiled, in prison and even martyred for taking that stand. At the birth of our nation, our fathers rebelled against the king who said, you do this and you do it my way. Our ancestors said, we will not do that. We will do it God's way. Because of these courageous men and women who resisted ungodly authority, you and I can look back on the twin births of religious freedom and national freedom. Even so, I must agree with Augustine who wrote of these Hebrew women, God rewarded them for their piety, not their deceit. I do not believe their deceitful response pleased God, but I do believe that despite that he rewarded them for doing what was right in his own eyes. Unfortunately, Israel's problems did not end with the midwife's courageous refusal. The king's murderous fury knew no restraint. Frustrated and angry, Pharaoh issued yet another command. Pharaoh commanded the people saying, Every son who is born, you are cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Pharaoh's directive, barbarous as it was, has its contemporary equivalent in reverse. In communist China today, couples are allowed only one child. When many, when many women learn the sexes of their babies, they either carry them to term or immediately abort. If it's a boy he lives, if it's a baby girl, she's frequently terminated. The date on the calendar may have changed since the days of the Exodus, but human nature has not. Apart from the redeeming work of Christ, our hearts are desperately wicked. Cruelty existed in Moses' day and cruelty exists now. Tyrants ruled in the ancient world and tyrants rule today. Injustice hurt the innocent in Pharaoh's time, in Herod's time, and still are in our sophisticated world today. But in the days of Exodus, there also live men and women ready to stand alone for righteousness, even in the face of death. Just as there are today, God always has his witnesses.